Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It was a great privilege to sit down with the legendary actor Gary Oldman and talk about his portrayal of Winston Churchill in his latest film, Darkest Hour. In the war room, there's um, the chair that he used to sit in in the war cabinet. On the left-hand arm of the chair, there are these divots and grooves from his fingernails. And on the right-hand arm are the scratches from his ring. The behaviour is a piece of history that you can touch and, and see. Check out the rest of the interview on my podcast, Dan Snow's History Hit, and make sure you go and see Darkest Hour when it's released to all good cinemas on January the 12th. It's an awesome film. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Clock. Oh, that was really interesting, mate, yeah. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Fighting Cock, The Extra Inch. Uh, This time, number six is going to be called Stats, I think because I'm joined by two of the sharpest statistical minds in the Twitter sphere, and also a newlywed Bardi. Bardi, my sidekick and best friend, welcome back to The Extra Inch. Thanks for having me back, Wendy. I, How- missed, I missed the last one. I listened to it with tears in my eyes. With, with Coxie as well. How good yeah, was he? He was really good. I, had, um, I really wanted to meet him, and I couldn't. So um, I felt really jealous. I was hoping to be like a power cut or something would go wrong, so you could get him back. How's married life treating you so far? Uh, it's been two weeks. It's been okay. I'm a man with responsibilities now. <laughs> I've got things to look after and things to take care of. It's good. And you're looking very tanned. Yeah, well, Colombia's quite hot. It's near the equator, so it's, it's sunny on occasion. What were the temperatures like? Um, it hit like 38 degrees at some points, and then in other parts of the country, it was just pure humidity. It was like trying to walk through a steam room constantly. <laughs> nice. Well, you're looking very well, mate, and it's Cheers. good to have you back. Also joined by our tactics guy, Nathan... How's it going, mate? Good, thank you. How are you, Nath? Yeah, not bad. Uh, spoilers, you're about to mention it's been a year since we- our first episode. And yes. uh, in that time, I've lost uh, nearly four and a half stone. So that was a nice little that's reminder impressive. of where I'm at. Very so, impressive. Well done to that's you. That's the zone I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm delighted to welcome Duncan Alexander from Opta, who you may know on Twitter as Oily Sailor. Duncan, welcome. Hello. Good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, we, you've got a book out at the moment, which we're going to spend some time talking about later and give you an opportunity to, to plug that and uh, tell us all about it. But we're going to start off by talking about XG or expected goals, because this season analytics have gone mainstream. Um, Match of a day is using XG, which is quite surprising. But um, you told me an interesting thing earlier that, that you pitched that to them. Yeah, well, it's obviously a, a model we developed um, four or five years ago, which is slowly caught on um, in the professional clubs and you know the blogosphere um, we made a decision early this year to try and you know push it out to the media more the more traditional media um, and match today obviously is uh, you know possibly the most traditional in the sense that it's the you know it's the one bit of football that my mum watches so um, I'm not sure she's quite grasped XG yet but <laughs> you know at least she can see it so have you had much feedback so far 
Uh, there was quite a lot on the first match of the day of the season. Um, I had a look on Twitter and, yeah, there were some people who were pleased, but there were some people who were uh, displeased or <laughs> angry, shall we say. But, I mean, I think it's just one of those things where, you know, anything new tends to tends to uh, lose some of the crowds. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and, you know, football fans are so divided into the types of fan that they are. Um, just, I mean, we did speak about XG briefly in the last extra inch uh, number five with Michael Cox and Nathan I thought gave a really good um, sort of summary of how it works but Duncan when you were on the Totally Football Show recently you said that you felt that XG tells the hidden story behind the game which I really liked I like that um, way of describing it how would you kind of explain what XG is to someone who's never heard of the term before? Yeah I think possibly the the term XG turns a few people off um, particularly the word expected I think a lot of people tend to think that it is it's kind of a predictive thing that's looking to the future, which it isn't. It, it's basically a look at chance quality. Um, you know, we've got a database of over, you know, three, four hundred thousand shots. So each one of those shots has taken place in a specific point on the pitch with a specific um, scenario, you know, a, a counter attack or a corner. Um, and we can also look at things like how the shot was taken. Was it with a foot? Was it with a head? So you put all these factors together and you basically work out an average for each type of chance in a particular location. Um, and then when a player, an individual player or a team has a shot, you can then rate that against the average. So that's all it does. So um, as you'd expect, some players are, are better than the average um, and some players aren't. I mean, and what, you know, the thing about telling the hidden story, I think, you know, every fan knows they've come out of games and said, oh, you know, our striker, you know, could have had a hatful today or, you know, our player scored, scored in his last four games, but he's playing terribly. You know, sometimes reality doesn't, tell the actual truth of, of what's going on and this kind of hopefully gets uh, underneath that a little bit Interesting, we had a question from Seamus Hart um, because there are there are multiple sort of models of XG that different people have developed over a number of years and Seamus asked uh, which is the best XG model and why um, and should people with no understanding of XG models be using XG if they don't know what it actually means? Which I thought was an interesting <laughs> follow-up question. Also, do you have a do you have a theory on which is the best model? Well, or? I mean, they're all pretty similar. Mm. Um, you know, they all the you know, the, the differences between them are, are pretty minute. Yeah. Um, some might weigh you know certain elements a little bit higher than others. Um, obviously, I would obviously say that ours is the best, but I think it pro- probably is because we've got the biggest database. You know. Mm. We, you know, a lot of the other ones are based on smaller subsets of data that people glean through uh, various ways. And um, ours, you know, we can actually, uh, you know, we, we can weight different competitions slightly differently. So if you take a league in, I don't know, Scandinavia, you might weight that slightly lower than La League or the Premier League because, you know, presu- you know it's pretty obvious that scoring a goal there is easier to do yeah. than in a top league. So we, we have the ability to do that. Um, and we're always looking to kind of um, tweak it. And, you know, that even this season or the end of the season, I think, you know, there might be a, a good uh, tweak that we're going to do as well. So. Mm, interesting. I think one of the criticisms of XG has been the fact that it's a quite a... It's quite a rational kind of statistic to apply to a game in a sport which is completely irrational. And you have a situation like at the end of a game where your team has lost, maybe, for example, Spurs against Manchester United, where we had a higher XG rating, I think. And it's just like you now have to explain to somebody who's already furious that they've lost. and say, but we expected to score more goals. And then their instant reaction is, but we didn't. And it kind of like there was the famous... Um, 
Craig Burley against Marcotti after the after the after Bayern Munich got knocked out to Atletico I think it's 2016 where it was just like ideal and results kind of quotes come from and I think that's where a lot of the criticism for XG comes from that you're applying something rational to something which makes people totally irrational and that was massively highlighted when Michael Cayley who's um, a big Spurs fan um, based in, in New York who's also a kind of football analytics guy he posted his uh, XG um, findings from the Real Madrid and Spurs tie which had Real Madrid at 2.1 and Spurs at 0.8 and the reaction to that was was pretty harsh to say the least people were not impressed I guess by the fact that he was posting that after one of the most mm. historic results in, in Spurs' recent history um, I mean to Michael, in Michael's defence he posts the XG after every game like pretty much right after the game so there was nothing unusual about the fact that he'd done that um, but I guess it's just like you say this dispassionate take on football which which got people's backs up Yeah and it's a kind of like the Brendan Rodgers take on it that we won possession so we should have won the game and it does get people's backs up a little bit I, f- I feel I think the, the Spurs reaction was that um, that Michael was taking away from the result and um, I don't think that that is, I can understand why people would have that reaction and the sort of the entitlement that comes with the term expected goals. Um, but I I think you you can watch that game and say, well, yeah, Real Madrid had all the ball and they made a lot of chances, but we snatched it. And to overachieve expected goals is an achievement in itself. Um, and just because Real Madrid created higher quality chances doesn't mean there isn't um, a lot of pride and a lot of joy to take from that game. I think this is quite a key point. Is it's how you present it, isn't it? Because as a as a neutral watching that game, it was a brilliant game. You know, two teams playing, both playing well, but in slightly different ways. But you know, Madrid clearly had more chances, mm. but Tottenham handled them really well at the same time. You, you, one data point isn't going to tell the whole story of a match. Is there's obviously going to be a lot of nuance in there, mm. um, and I think that is again key to how you present stuff. So you don't want to be you know, you don't want to be a zealot and sort of say this this one number is going to revolutionise football because it's not. You know, what was the rationale um, for for match of the day using xG rather than xGD, which is the difference between expected goals scored and conceded? Uh, just, I think that's probably even more of a of a you know complicated idea. To so too get, much for people to to take in. Yeah, it? I mean, even xG, I, it's going to take a few years before it becomes. You know, if you, if you go back ten, fifteen years assists were seen as kind of a mysterious yeah. work of the devil that would never catch on but they, they really are kind of just part and parcel of the game now you know everyone knows what an assist is um, and it does take a while for these things to filter through but you, there will be a difficult period where it is you know new in inverted commas um, and you just have to work through that and, and hopefully you know people will get it sooner rather than later so with that in mind, which do you think is the next underlying stat that's going to hit the mainstream as such? Yeah, so we've got one, we've got a few, we've got expected assists, which is also out, which is, you know, as you might expect, a similar uh, model in some respects to expected goals. It basically um, looks at every completed pass and applies the chance of it becoming an assist. So obviously a, a pass between two central defenders has pretty much got negligible chance of being an assist but if you're playing a lot of passes you know, into good positions you can you can apply expected assist but again that's possibly even more complicated to get your head around than expected goals but one that I think really will um, work in terms of kind of the public grasping it quite quickly is a thing we've got called sequences. So we can 
you know, we've, we've always collected individual events, but now we're able to link them together. So, you know, there's always been players who might have been key to um, a chain of events, but won't necessarily have a goal or an assist. So, if you, in a Spurs context, you know, Christian Eriksen um, last season was first or second in terms of being involved in sequences that led to a shot. I think he was top, actually. So, he might not have played the final pass, but he was always in that chain of events. Similarly, Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal's, you know, he, especially him, he didn't have a season that sort of leapt off the, you know, in people's imagination. But he was always involved in, in everything they did, and it's kind of, it's kind of again under, you know, finding that hidden kind of uh, contributor really. Mm-hmm. Interesting, and I guess Luka Modric would be another fine example yeah. of someone who, who, when you watch him, you might not think he's he's doing much that affects the game, but we know that actually he's exactly. doing a whole bunch of stuff that affects the game, exactly. but it just might not be that visible. Yeah, and in in the stats, well, we're not. You know, like I said, we're not zealots, and also we we take on board what people say. You know, the, the historical criticisms of, of stats, things like, you know, OX might have a pass completion of ninety five percent, but they're all sideways. You know, we're trying to, we're always striving to kind of put more context around events and and hopefully, you know, tell a better story. So what do you, when when people like Graham Sunes, who he's come out this week and he's he was speaking in the paper about Pascal Gross, who's the um, Brighton attacking midfielder they signed from Germany in the Bundesliga. And Sunes has made this point that Gross was shown to have created 95 chances last season and and only had four assists. And Sunes seems particularly angry about this point and and how someone can be using it to promote this player. What do you think that does for for people like you in your industry? Do do you feel like it sets you back when someone as high profile as Graham Sunes is saying something like that? Not really. I think, you know, I touch on it in the book actually because there's a whole chapter about Liverpool going <clears throat> 27 years without a title. And, you know, when Sunes came in to Liverpool in the 90s, he was he's a bit, you know, wrongly maligned in a sense. He, he actually was more progressive then. He'd come from, you know, recently played in Italy and stuff. So, you know, but I guess as people get older, they can't become a little bit more entrenched in their views. I mean, that point was very. The, point he made out of possession was sort of fair enough but the one about the chances and assists you you know you could put Messi in a Sunday league team he might make a lot of chances but no one takes them it doesn't mean he's not a good player um, you could argue that Brighton's scouting was good there because they found a player that you know was very creative but possibly went under the radar because he wasn't you know assisting a lot of goals the, the the point he made about possession is is essentially the one you made a minute ago about how a play can have 95% pass completion but and he says um, those passes can all just be five yards to the left and five yards to the right well five yards is a statistic and that's a piece of information that you can apply to pass completion you can say this player had this pass completion with an average length of this or an average zone of this so his argument against statistics is based on statistics yeah so he shot himself in the first century I, I think so and what he was saying was ultimately that the the stat is ridiculous, but actually you could use that stat to prove that that stat's ridiculous. So what's he arguing about? What he's finding ridiculous is the um, conscious misuse of statistics mm. to create narratives, to create stories that are or aren't there. Um, and I think we all feel that way, but that that sort of giving statistics a bad name, and that's, that's the overriding issue. I think there's something that Duncan touched on in his book. It's about the... Um, I think you, you actually said the nerdy approach to analysing. All of a sudden, it's, going, it's, getting, it's clashing with the kind of dressing room culture and the kind of macho kind of image of football and it's just like get, getting stuck in and all this kind of stuff. And it will take time for people to understand it. And to be honest with you, there are Sam Allardyce, somebody who's um, 
renowned as being like a long ball merchant and stuff, he was one of the first to actually start using data to his advantage. So that it is happening, but I guess it's going to take even longer for people on the terraces and stuff to kind of accept that this is where the game is going. This is the revolution of the game now. I really want to talk more about the dressing room culture and how they've taken to, to statistics, but can we just first touch upon the data collection element? Because we were talking before we started recording and I was fascinated by the, the method that's used by Opta to... to to get this information in the first place yeah in my head I just imagine like an um, airplane hanger full of people with like headphones on and little click a clicker in, you know like a bouncer in a club as someone goes in <laughs> clicks 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 so each time passes complete one hand for incomplete one hand for complete and that's in my head that's what was going on so how does it work Duncan yeah I wouldn't I wouldn't hire any of them as bouncers <laughs> um, so yeah no we've we've had the same analysis system since about 2006 we've obviously you know tweaked it in the interim but um, it's custom built software we essentially get a it's done two people one home for the, one person for the home team one person for the away team and a third person who kind of QAs the data as it comes through um, the they get a screen where they can have they get video footage of the match but then they have to transpose that obviously 3D image to 2D a 2D pitch so obviously the, the camera will track the ball roughly in the centre when it films a football match but they then have to um, say you know this pass came from the edge of the the D to the left flank and it, it's a you know, you not only have to have amazing knowledge of, of the team and players, particularly if you're doing a, a far-flung league, but you have to have that kind of lateral thinking where you, you know, you are not panicking and you're constantly just collecting the data. And it is, you know, it takes about six months for the guys to be to be trained and let loose. And it is, you know, they collect around two thousand bits of data a match, um, so it's full on. I mean, they're the only people that absolutely love a, a very serious injury because they can. Uh, you know, just have breathe. a break. Yeah, <laughs> have a little rest. So, what about things like di- ground distance covered by individual players? Is that? Is yeah, we don't collect that, but we get access to it for certain competitions. You know, for instance, it, the Premier League with the official data supplier, so we can access that information. Um, I think there is going to be some big advances in uh, statistics in terms of combining data sets. That's very much kind of the way things are going. So, if you can combine. You know our event data with with tracking data. You can suddenly look at you know players who are making them overlapping runs. You can look at players who are particularly good at shooting under pressure, things like that. So it kind of opens up a whole sort of you know new set of, of data points. So, so uh, would that with the tracking data would it be literally like a like a heart monitor on a player would would be able to track the number of sprints they've made or the amount of distance well the, the, that kind basically of the the tracking world now is there's two kind of two approaches there's optical which is obviously cameras in a ground which um relies on a lot of technology and you know access to grounds mm. and stuff but at least you're not reliant on the player I mean, to remember to wear wearable tech obviously most clubs will use wearable wearables in training to track stuff uh, a couple of years it is now since fifa approved that for in-game i know swansea in the premier league do it um, Wickham, who I support, did it on the first of the season a couple of years back against Plymouth, and Plymouth refused to play the match. And I'm not sure it was because they're from Devon and a bit scared of technology, but they, um, the Wickham secretary had to go in and print off the letter from the Football League saying it was OK to wear them. But, I mean, I think it's interesting, actually, League 1, League 2 teams have, have been doing that more because they obviously have less data generally so they're kind of more keen on collecting it in game in that sense but that's so fascinating so Plymouth may have been scared that Wickham were going to have this competitive advantage where at half time they'd be able to read off this data and say right you're doing this wrong you're doing this wrong possibly although I think it was more that the 
you know, they were worried. They they were claiming it would be dangerous jumping at corners and stuff. But I mean, players wear it in rugby and stuff. It can't yeah. be that bad. But that's bizarre. <laughs> but that brings us on nicely to something else I wanted to speak about, which is the the use of data at, at clubs. Um, and there's been enormous growth in analytics departments and we saw it at Spurs when we brought in Paul Mitchell from Southampton with his famed black box don't know how long that lasted probably about as long as Paul Mitchell Um, but we know that Spurs were using a lot of data for recruitment but also for match analysis they were using it post-training they were using the black box to show videos and um, sort of had their own editing suite for that kind of thing do you have any insight into how and how much clubs are using data to analyse matches and, and player performance? Yeah, I mean, obviously I can't really go into specific examples at clubs because they're understandably keen on keeping that to themselves. But, yeah. You know, we work with pretty much every major club in Europe and around the world and, you know, we're not the only uh, player in that space either. So, you know, there's plenty of others as well. And they, I, I wouldn't think there's a single club in the top uh, division of any major competition that isn't using data in some way. What's interesting, or not interesting, as the case may be, but it kind of it only often only ever gets brought out when there's either a, a very strange success, like Leicester City win the league, or where the manager gets sacked and is kind of looking for a bit of a excuse. I remember when Brendan Rodgers left Liverpool, there was a he had a, a few articles in various places, sort of bemoaning their. Um, transfer committee. Although, if you actually look at the players the committee signed, like Firmino, uh, etc., been pretty good compared to the ones that were, you know, done more traditionally. So, um, you know, as you say, it's done for recruitment, it's done for player performance, it's look, you know, opposition. Uh, we hold an event every February called the Opt Pro Forum. Opt Pro is our kind of professional club wing. Um, where people from the industry, be they kind of amateurs or from clubs, will come and present. And the first year, there was a really interesting one by a a guy um, who works at Manchester City. And he actually showed how uh, they take opt data, they they sort of pull out passing patterns. And then he showed a video of... um, Pellegrini as it was at the time on the training pitch physically moving Yaya Toure and Silva around uh, it was actually for a, a game against Tottenham um, and then they, he showed the game I think it was, they went 5-0 or 5-1 at White Hart Lane and uh, three, of the, or three or four of the goals basically came from them intercepting in those exact passing channels so it was a really interesting kind of example of how a club will take raw data do something with it apply that to the training pitch and then move on to a, to a match scenario as um, as Spurs fans, I think we're the only ones who didn't celebrate Leicester's kind of miraculous title. Yeah. Um, how far would you say that there, there was it a combination of data and luck and the right manager and the right players at the right time, or was it was that was their success all down to them using the data? And it definitely wasn't one? all down to data. I mean, as many people have pointed out, you know, football is such a low-scoring game that luck will play a disproportionately high part in football compared to other sports so you know you could repeat that season many times and you can you can run it on various different metrics and sometimes Spurs will win sometimes Arsenal win less to less than those two to be honest Mm -hmm. but I think what the two interesting things with Leicester when they won the league were a obviously their recruitment was very good and that was very data-led so you know get um, not only buying Kante but buying him from a team that played in a very similar fashion to them so it wasn't like he had to come in you know we've all seen players come into the Premier League who are good players but really struggled to adapt because they're basically playing in a completely different way to, to how they used to whereas Kante was able to basically just carry on and he has obviously at Chelsea as well but um, and the other thing was really interesting was the way Leicester completely changed their approach halfway through the season so the first half of the season was all about VAR 
Vardy and Mares and you know counter-attacking but you know Premier League teams are pretty adept at adapting and half halfway through the season um, Leicester have kind of been figured out and then they they basically became this amazing defensive team and they won all those games I think they won was it five in a row one nil which is mm. pretty unprecedented um, and that basically was what won them, won them the title in the end um, you know Spurs for sort of semi-valiant attempt at hunting them down but they they didn't really after uh, after the Arsenal game when Arsenal fan uh, team were doing the selfies in the dressing room they didn't really have another slip and, and that was the kind of most impressive thing really they got figured out and then they worked out another way of doing it Do you have a feel at all for sort of the size of analytics departments at clubs and whether they've grown over the last few years because I mean we hear so little about it in, in the mainstream media and it's you, as a fan, you don't really have an idea of how much data is being used. I mean, we would like to hope that when it comes to recruitment, especially, that we'd be using a lot of underlying data to identify players. But then we go and sign someone like Muta Sissoko for £30 million. So you sort of you begin to doubt whether it's actually happening. Another example would be Clinton and G. I I mean, it seemed like a completely bizarre signing, and in hindsight, it's you know, maybe slightly less so because he's gone on to do better, but... The fact remains that he didn't seem to be a good fit in any way for the team. So you sort of start to question what the club's looking at. Yeah, football's quite strange in the sense that you know it has a transfer window where you can do you can spend months researching and years researching players and making sure they fit, and then you know you lose the first two games of the season and everyone panics and it's like get some we need some bodies in and all that stuff. So you know the susceptibility to panic is still quite big, but I don't. You know, all the top Premier League teams will have very extensive departments, and not. And I think they're diversifying more and more. So, um, I think people are kind of realise that you're not ever going to kind of find the kind of holy, holy grail stat like you did in baseball, for instance. Um, and it's going to be more sort of you know marginal gains ish kind of approach, where you know little little kind of advances here and there will, will make a difference, be that in recruitment or tactics or, or whatever. I've uh, I've sort of been poking my nose around uh, jobs in the industry a little bit, and uh, what I often find is is from including Premier League clubs, but football league clubs, um, advertise for a performance analysis, and that includes all a variation of tasks, all the way from coding, which you mentioned earlier, which is watching the match and and recording all the things that happen, through to presenting the data and the tactical analysis and all the stuff of that, and that that to me indicates fairly small staff uh, committed to that side of things so I, I suspect that um, there's still quite a way to go within clubs yeah that. I think generally I think you can probably pick out a couple I mean Manchester City are probably the the most advanced I'd say in that respect in terms of size of department and, and but yeah it, it will take a bit of time obviously but I think it is um, I think probably the biggest disconnect is is kind of converting it into a language that managers and or chairman will accept. Mm. And that is, it's all very well having the, a bunch of really clever guys that can analyse football and come up with good stuff. But if, you, if you're if you not presenting it in the right way, it's never going to reach that. You know, And I know people in the industry who've, who've worked for clubs who, you know, they just can't get through to the manager and that's where it kind of falls apart a bit. I think this is one of the beautiful things I like about Pochettino is I know there's a lot of science and everything else behind it, but when you still look at him, and the way he brings through younger players like Kane, Winks and stuff, there's still kind of like a little bit of romanticism about it. That someone like Kane, who, I don't know whether he ticked the boxes as a youngster, then all of a sudden explodes onto the scene like that. That's what I quite like about Pochettino's Tottenham. 
he seems to be kind of a mix between the old and the new in, in his style of management. He's he's very much a gut feel kind of guy, and, and I don't just mean his gut feel, but he'll take the gut feel of the players and mm. he'll listen to them and he'll he'll really take that into consideration when he makes a decision about about their performance or their participation in a match. So if the player doesn't feel right for whatever reason, he'll that's a big deal to him. You that's know, he, what, yeah, that's what makes you think Sissoko wasn't probably anything to do with him. Either. What you, you think that? No, I don't think so. It was just forced upon him. He yeah. he said, "I want a player that matches these criteria." And said, Here you go, have <laughs> yeah. Musa. Yeah, lucky guy. So let's talk a bit about your book, Duncan. Mm. So you, you've you've published this um, book outside the box. Where did the idea come from? Is this something you kind of always had in mind to do? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've worked in the kind of data industry for uh, 10 or 12 years now. So I've seen, you know, data go from a a super niche kind of thing through to, you know, fairly mainstream, but still not actually mainstream. Um, And I don't come from a a data background. I sort of did history and, you know, my love of football stems from, from reading Shoot and Match when I was a kid. So I kind of wanted to do a history of football particularly sort of history of the Premier League given it was 25 years of the Premier League um, with numbers but not kind of numbery so it's kind of a narrative history of the Premier League and other things like the World Cup and and various other things um, using numbers but still you know you you don't have to be into data to read it it should well hopefully should be appealing to everyone. So the idea is that it's accessible to anyone regardless of whether they've got a particular interest in numbers. Yeah, it's more kind of using numbers to debunk stuff or, or highlight things that people might have forgotten or, you know, that sort of thing. I finished the the book on on the plane on the way back from, um, from my wedding and I thought you were quite brave in writing a whole chapter almost like trolling Liverpool. About <laughs> you, went, you listed every single year that they hadn't won the league and why they hadn't won the league. Mm. I, I, I was quite brave of you to so do well, that. Some Liverpool fans have enjoyed that, some haven't. <laughs> but, um, but I think I've, I, it's possibly my favourite bit of the book, I think. I, it, it's almost extraordinary Liverpool gone 27 years mm. that win the league. If you'd have said to a Liverpool fan in 1990, you know, before you win the league again, Leeds will, they'd have been confused Blackburn they'd have been very confused he said Leicester they'd have you know just walked off I think but it you know they've come close a lot of times I think the interesting thing is if you if you go through it each season as I did every time they've come close that summer the media who love Liverpool obviously have been like the next year it's their bat it's their year and they've always just fallen away massively they've never been able to sustain two or three years I I didn't realize how many times they had come quite close I mean, there was more than just the Benitez. There was the years when Manchester United had finished third and they'd come second and they seemed like genuine title well, champions. Yeah, Phil Thompson almost took them to the title, mm. which is a, a strange concept. <laughs> um, but, you know, they won like, you know, a lot of games in the season. It was the year Arsenal, 0102, Arsenal won the last 13. So, um, and that, yeah, Roy Evans only did it and obviously the Benitez won and the Rodgers won. But, um, yeah, a bit, a bit like Spurs and Leicester, you could replay a lot of those seasons and, and Liverpool would have won the league, but the fact is they haven't. So Was that Liverpool pattern something that you always had in your head when you were writing the book, or was it something that came to you through research? Uh, it was more that it, I kind of... Spoiled, I mean, that's the beauty of working with numbers, really, is that you might be... I mean, a lot of the stuff we put on Opta Joe is, isn't necessarily stuff we've thought of it's stuff we've found while we're looking for something else yeah. so you someone will ask you you know the last time is harry kane the first player to do blah 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 and as you're doing as you're researching that you find something else and you know and, and before social media those sort of things would just disappear into the ether but now there's a, a hopefully good channel to push it out on you must get thousands of requests a week from people tweeting up to joe mm. 
Yeah, some of them are better than others. <laughs> <laughs> you get some very niche niche requests. Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, the, the, we always do some, on April Fool's Day. We always put some April Fool's ones out, and those ones will get quoted like months later. And you're like, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. That one is true. But oh, as a as a Tottenham fan, immediately my eyes are always drawn to um, any stat involving Tottenham, and I didn't realise that King actually did play. Man- he managed to play one full season, two oh four oh five. He played all thirty eight Premier League games. Yeah, and that that just blew my mind. I thought we'd never were able to squeeze a whole season out of him. Oh, just before it all hit, wasn't it? And then there was another one which I, I said I was going to call call you out, where you actually used the term Spursy, where Tottenham <laughs> are the team that's lost that's lost the. Um, those most often led at half time and then gone on to lose the game. Uh, I saw that stat and I was just like, I remember that we had that that stat came up a couple of years ago and we we've the, we're the opposite as well. We, yeah, we've, the most times that we've been losing, we've come over. So we're we're an absolute chaotic roller coaster of a club. Um, <laughs> but it's one of my pet hates is that, and it's not just it's not restricted to Tottenham. Every fans of every club do it. Whenever their team lets a lead slip, they're like, well, that's typical <laughs> Huddersfield, or you know. Yeah. It, it happens to everyone. It's like, you know. But Spurs more than the rest. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is Harry Kane is the striker with the most own goals in, in Premier League mm, history. Already, he's just rack- it's quite. I mean, if you think of the way he plays, he'll, he'll be back defending more yeah. than, say, Aguero would or someone. But it is, you know, it's a good job he's scoring so many other in the pitch. Off the top of my head, I can remember two. There was the one against Swansea and Sunderland. Yeah. I can't remember the other one. I think he's often at the near post on mm. corners a lot. So, and that's a, it's easy to glance one yeah, yeah to just sort of yeah. shin it or yeah. whatever he exactly. d- didn't he take a crazy swipe at one that just flew into the top of the that net was well? that was Swansea but yeah. I do remember Bale scoring one against Liverpool where he kicked it into, into his, his own, own face, face. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, yes I'll never forget that he scored and the, at the other end as well for that one I think. Yes. the year Liverpool almost won the league under Rodgers and Martin Skirtle scored four in one season <laughs> Good going. That's impressive in one year. I think Richard Dunn scored the most in goals. He he was famous for it. Just it felt like he's he's scored for a season for about ten years. Yeah, I think he's the only one in double figures, which is again impressive. Carragher and Carragher obviously scored more Premier League goals for Spurs than he did for Liverpool. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And that. Because um, because we've had this um, big vacuum in our right hand side of our team when Walker left has been replaced by Trippier, I've become a little bit obsessed with um, Trippier doing take-ons, and. Um, one of your thing, one of in one of the articles you talked about a guy whose birthday is today, Maradona, who managed to do ninety dribbles mm. in the '86 World Cup, and I was just like, Kieran Trippier hasn't done one in like two <laughs> seasons, and Maradona did like ninety in ten games. I, I think you'll find that Trippier has done one, has and Nathan's one? got a thread <laughs> on Twitter about his take on, which is genius. Yeah, I've done a sort of. <laughs> an ironic cut up to win sort of um, over the top dubstep to his two three take on so far and they're all backwards <laughs> and and they're all followed by just like a sideways sort of backwards pass at least so his take on is running back towards his own goal yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. amazing desperately seeking safety <laughs> <laughs> bless him bless him so in terms of going back to your book Duncan what what did you find what was the toughest part of writing a book was it just, just getting started I, I imagine that just taking on an enormous task like that must be really kind of scary yeah pres- uh, pressing control n on a word document is always <laughs> a, a tough moment but um i think this one because obviously the year before i did the up to joe football yearbook that one uh i think the, the second one was harder in the sense it covered the history i mean it goes back to the 19th century in places so it was a lot more to kind of condense and, and but i think it was more enjoyable because you're just covering a lot more stuff um 
yeah so it, i mean, don't think there was any particular bits that were harder than others it was just it's a it's a big old task you know were you doing this just in your spare time um no i did it as part of work as well so, so. it's part of a project at work yeah, as well yeah. as but i mean it was a mixture so yeah but it is i mean anyone who's who's written a book will will you know agree that it is you have to get in to a certain mindset and some days you can bang out two thousand words and some days you know you've struggled with 200 so really? yeah and was it a case that you were kind of researching as you went along or were you did you do a lot of research before you started writing it depends on the bit so there's a bit uh, there's a chapter about why World Cups aren't exciting anymore and kind of we up to a few years ago went back and analysed um, every World Cup from 1966 onwards not out of some you know mad England thing but just because that was the first World Cup where every game was televised so obviously we need TV footage to to collect the data so we have a complete record of every World Cup from 66 so you can compare Cruyff and Pelé and Maradona and stuff which is really cool but you can in the chapter in the book it basically goes through the different eras of World Cups and and like you said Maradona was exceptional you know Mm. but he played in a very not only is the dribbles high, but he was fouled a ridiculously high number yep. of times over like ninety times across two World Cups, um, which is in you know, and I, I sort of wonder whether he obviously was one of the greatest players ever, but it's almost like he was suited to that sort of football. You know, he was he was so sort of squat and strong that if you know Peter Reid's flying in at your knees, he could handle it. Messi probably couldn't, but you know. Yeah, that's why, why I don't think you can pe- can compare players that across eras that much. Because but Maradona actually said the English treated him quite fairly. Mm. So I think maybe because in '82 he had the Italians kicking him, and then he had the Koreans early in um, in in '86 who properly butchered him as well. They, the England did still foul him nine times in the yeah. uh, quarterfinal in '86. So I suppose that was relatively fair. <laughs> yeah, targeted they, to some extent. He got us back as well. They, well, the Eng- England was like, well, England foul in Argentina is something that's always happened. I think. In your book as well, Alan Ball fouled, uh, made 35 fouls against Argentina in 66. It's so funny because we always think of them as the dirty team. As the dirty don't team. We? Yeah, I think it was the total England fouls. Was, but it's the, I think it's yeah. the most fouls in any World Cup game without a booking. So obviously that game's famous for Alf Ramsey saying that they were animals, but who were the real animals? Yeah. <laughs> But I, <laughs> I'm a big lover of the World Cup, and I will continue to see the merit in World Cups. The fact it's only four years, and it's not quite as um, diluted as the Champions League is. I, I admit the Champions League is probably a higher quality, but for me, I think the fact that the World Cup is so spaced apart, and the fact that you have got countries who can't go and spend 50 million by players and stuff, they, they're kind of limited with the talent. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
and they've got I think that for me they'll always give it the edge over a Champions League yeah I do make the point actually that I think it's very much geographically based so in England England have been so bad in World Cups for such a long time now that you know, people are disillusioned. Whereas you go to a country mm. that's just you go to Costa Rica. I'm sure they're absolutely loving the World Cup at the moment because the last one they they had their best ever. Do you know what I mean? So it's very much dependent on yeah. how you've done. I was in um, I was in Colombia and they qualified after getting a one-one draw with Peru and the whole country was alive. For them, it's an amazing thing and it's totally different to the feeling that we have here, where people just can't be bothered with it. And it is totally dependent on the country. Some places love it, others don't. And me, I will always love the World Cup. Don't miss the extraordinary new film, Darkest Hour. Let them see your true qualities. My poor judgment. Your sense of humour. Ho, ho, ho. Gary Oldman is the winner of a Golden Globe for Best Actor. You ask what is happening? Victory. Now nominated for nine BAFTAs, including Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress and Best Film. We shall never surrender! Darkest Hour. In cinemas now. So... What's next for you, Duncan? Do you have another book lined up? Is that something you'd be interested in doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got a few ideas for the next one. Um, I, I, you know, I want to kind of continue to to marry kind of history and, and numbers and, and that sort of approach. So, I think you know, I only really touch the surface with this one, even with the Premier League. Um, but I think there's so much more out there so uh, I've got a few a few ideas that hopefully come to fruition pretty soon. It seems to be pretty positively received so far and I, I enjoyed James Richardson reading out a quote on the Totally Football show which must have been a slightly bizarre thing for you having like a, a broadcasting legend like that reading out a review of a book that you've written I don't know that must have made you feel pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, where, where can people get your book? Where, uh, it should be in you? all your favourite and unfavourite bookshops uh, or you know the websites that everyone knows um, so so, yeah. Is there a particular source where you get a, a better profit? No, not particularly. No. So, yeah, just By get anyone. it where you can. Yeah. Cool. Well, we're going to move on slightly um, away from statistics and on to tactics. And Nathan mentioned earlier that it's basically a year since our first Extra Inch podcast. And in that first one, we were speaking about Pochettino's tactical principles and ideas from his beginnings as a Bielsa disciple to what he did at Southampton and then his early Spurs 4-2-3-1. But this year's been quite different and I think we've always seen progression through Pochettino. Last year he brought in the 3-4-3, which worked superbly. That was something that Bardi had long spoken of. He wanted a back three for, for years. Three. Um, and this year we've seen him change again with a back three but with two up front or a diamond in midfield, which again seems to be slightly harking back to some of Bielsa's principles although we don't have our wing backs tucking in whereas Bielsa would always have, have done that um, but what what do you feel is next for Pochettino Nath what's what's the kind of next logical step for him and, and what do you what have you made of these recent changes I, I, I feel like he may well be um, sort of nearing the completion of his playbook I think that um, with the addition of the sort of the more counterattack style that we've seen, I think we're going to talk about this later. But the more the the counterattack uh, that we've seen against Dortmund, against Liverpool, against Real Madrid, um, and the three-five-two, I don't know what all he can do is um, find a way to make what we have got more sustainable. Um, 
I was moving away from this idea before, but after Dembele came on against United, and I know that United scored, I do feel that we improved. Um, so there's there's still that slight air of <laughs> we need Dembele. Um, so, but yeah, I mean we're we're still good without him. I don't know. I don't know what else Quadrino can do. I think we're um, nearing the end of his his cycle of progress. What do you see as the optimal use of Dembele now in terms of? what formation he fits best into um, I think he and may, I don't know if he still does I don't know what his fitness is like or what the capacity for it is I, I think he enables the 4-3-3 um, which is which allows sort of three out and out attackers on the pitch and uh, allows the wing backs to really go forward I think the best use of Dembele is saving him for the ultimate games even if he's fit just have him hang around because he's so um prone to injury and Winks is such a capable backup that yeah lock put him in ice and, and lock him away do you think he could do a job as the deepest lying player like the, the role that Winks took on away at Real Madrid I think you want his ability to take the ball past players um, rather than stay deep and distribute the ball mm. so you're always going to prefer Winks to stay deep or Wanyama or Dyer or whoever so I think I think he's going to remain positionally where he is a shuttler off to the side of a more natural holding player. I get the feeling from how Pochettino's setting the team up now is that this this is the furthest away I think it's been from his team. He's constantly having to try and piece a team together because we don't have Dembele, we don't have Wanyama, we haven't had Rose and we're constantly he's constantly having to put players in positions where they're not quite comfortable. And I think this is the most impressed I've been with him. I know there's been issues with um, recent games we've lost but he doesn't have the team he needs. He needed an alternative to Kane and we got Lorente. And he's struggling, but he's still managing to eke out the results. And I think that is big kudos to him for being able to do that. Because I think this is probably the weakest squad we've had at the moment. Weakest squad? I, th- I think so. The fact that he's had to kind of squeeze Sissoko into this kind of central midfield player because he's not he can't he's technically not good enough to play in the, in a free behind the front man and to move, move him into centre midfield I think it's the weakest because of the injuries we've got mm, yeah and that's why that's what he's fighting against and our recruitment was great in Davinson Sanchez is an amazing player but he didn't get the players he needed to really put his own stamp on and he's having to kind of fight fires constantly now do you have a feel for Pochettino's style, Duncan? What 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 kind of impresses you about him as a as a tactician, and such? I think it's just his adaptability. Mm. I mean, you know, there's you get managers who are very good, but they're very you know you you know what Mourinho's going to do. Um, he does it very well, but it is a sort of you know one playbook really. But, but Pochettino, like Guardiola, they uh, Guardiola is a bit more kind of you know set, but in a very kind of advanced. So, I mean, it, I tweeted. And City had scored a lot of goals uh, the other week that they'd already equaled Stuart Pearce's City in the whole season. And you had a lot of people come back, obviously saying, "Yeah, yeah," but they've had a half a billion, all that stuff. But it's it's not that because you could give Stuart Pearce or Tim Sherwood half a billion pounds to spend. It's 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 people you give it to someone like Guardiola or Pochettino, and and it's you know that's where they show their kind of ability, I think. Well, Man City did give half a billion kind of to Mark Hughes and mm. he signed Rocker Santa Cruz and players <laughs> like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Santa Cruz, the uh, only one season did he ever get into double figures for goals and it was the season just before Man City signed him for a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> 
I I have brought this up numerous times, but I feel like the one area in which he's lacking still is substitutions. And I really enjoyed the article by Alistair Tweedale for the Telegraph um, at the end of October, where he's talking about whether managers impact games with their substitutions. And he pointed out that at that point in the season, Spurs subs had only scored one goal. And that was Muta Sissoko scoring in the 91st minute against Huddersfield when we were already 3-0 up. <laughs> um, and also, that we've our subs have failed to provide a single assist in Premier League or Champions League games. And the comparison was primarily with United, who'd at that point got 10 goals or assists by subs. Now 11, as we know only too well. And also the point that the average time of our first sub was in the 69th minute, which is the second latest after Southampton. And our second substitution tends to come in the 81st minute and third in the 89th, and both are by distance the latest in the entire league. So he's making subs late, he's making changes late, they're not having an impact. Does that say more about the fact that he just simply trusts his first 11 more, or is it he doesn't really see what's happening in games until it's too late? I think part of it is maybe that he doesn't have the bench he needs to be able to affect games, whereas Mourinho can throw on Anthony Martial, Jesse Lingard, these kind of players. We've got Sissoko, and Sun is probably a great impact sub, but we need him to start, so we don't have the depth. And we saw um, in the League Cup game we bring on um, George Nkudu, who is doesn't look like a footballer at the moment and that is unfortunately the problem we have at our club we don't have alternatives and the one great hope that we that we all have as Spurs fans is Marcus Edwards is, is this amazing player who can be this um, impact sub that we need I think he's still quite limited by his fitness regime and he goes into games knowing this player needs to be off before this time and this player needs to have 20 minutes so that he can build the fitness for the weekend um, so I think that dictates a lot of what he does. I do feel that this season we've maybe started to push towards more tactical substitutions uh, going on. I'm now going to struggle to think of an example at all, um, but that's just the feeling I have. Yeah, no, I've, I've kind of got that idea as well that he's he tried to change things up a little bit more. And I think once Dembele is fully fit and can be trusted to to play a significant stint, then with him and Winks both in the squad you've got options there for what you can do in midfield which helps a little bit Winks was our impact sub he would come on to close games off but now he's having to start as well Yeah. and I guess when if Lamella ever returns to fitness he will have another option there and Lamella's a brilliant impact sub we've seen him numerous times come off the bench and have an impact not necessarily in terms of goals or assists but in terms of what he brings to the team in pressing in those last 15 minutes keeping the ball at the right end of the pitch and, and stopping teams kind of countering on us um, so you're right that injuries have had a massive impact I think on, on these use of subs Lorente had quite a, a good substitution against West Ham coming on starting a bunch of fights to, to run the clock down I thought that was pretty, pretty good <laughs> use of substitutions <laughs> go on go on and run about a bit and do plenty of shithousing yeah basically <laughs> like a, expert yeah. shithousing yeah. Lorente we've had some questions from, from listeners um, and we'll start off with uh, I know Alan Gilzine on Twitter who says how and why has Pochettino changed our performances in Europe this season I think you were sort of touching on that earlier Nathan yeah I mean essentially he um, is doing something that he's shown very little sign of doing before which is to to play on the break uh, we, we sort of looked at it a little bit before we played it against City once we played it against Arsenal once but that struck me as sort of something that was thrown together uh, in order to get through the game this seems like this is his 
his plan B. This is his. This is what this looks like. This is our alternative approach. Um, as something that we've seen this season. Um, yeah, it it's as much about the quality of the teams that we've been playing. There's a really strong top six in the Premier League. We drew Real Madrid and Dortmund in the Champions League. We're playing at Wembley, which does seem to favour counter-attack teams. But I think it's also about um, the rise of high pressing in global football and our susceptibility to it because we want to play through our centre-backs. And if your centre-back loses the ball to an opposition player, they're through on goal straight away. Um so I think it makes a lot of sense for that reason, and that is why we're seeing it now. Do you feel as though we're playing at a higher tempo in, in Europe as well? I thought last year we were slow, we were tepid. Um, it looked like we were trying to conserve energy, and I feel this year we've gone out... I mean, you know, you're right, we're counter-attacking, but we're counter-attacking at pace, and I felt like we never reached top gear in any of the matches last year. I think there's a genuine focus on the Champions League mm. this year. We're not going away... Like last year we went away to Monaco and we rested players and we're not resting players now Kane possibly might have been able to play against Manchester United but it was ruled out no he's been saved for Madrid and I just think there's more of a focus on it now to try and get out of this group Have you seen much of Spurs in Europe this season Duncan? Uh, I watched the Real Madrid game uh, and the Dortmund game and I think just generally the Premier League's looking particularly good and we've obviously got five teams for the first time um, and there does seem to be a real kind of step up from the league as a whole I think you could argue that both Barcelona and Real Madrid are you know, not at their best at the moment same with the German teams as well um, so I think you know, it's looking, and it is very cyclical. You know, you go back to the 2000s when the Premier League last kind of dominated the competition. It was with two managers, you know, Mourinho and Benitez, who came in and really kind of set a style that then other teams in the Premier League kind of followed. And it, and it was a template that worked for a few years. And I think we're kind of at that, a different template now, but a, a similar sort of uh, situation. Hmm, interesting. And would Pochettino be one of the managers that other teams would be trying to emulate, do you think? I think so, yeah. I think obviously him, Guardiola and Klopp as well, you know, they've all in different ways had a lot of success in Europe. Um, well, Pochettino less so, but, you know, I think he's kind of making a, a mark and, uh, you know, this season really is, it does feel different. Hmm. Second question this time round is from Lane to Glory on Reddit, who says, what kind of role do you think momentum plays in football? It's obviously a separate discussion from tactics, but it would be great to hear your views. For instance, would a win against West Ham have improved our chances against United in terms of the mentality of the players, even though many of the players for the West Ham game didn't start against United? Any thoughts? Um, As a a tactics guy and also kind of a statistics guy, uh, we tend to sort of play down the intangibles. But um, if you've played football, and I recommend you do, it's a lot of fun... um, (laughs) you can feel firsthand what momentum feels like. You know when you're on a run of good games and, and things just sort of come off of you. And you know when you've had a run of bad games and suddenly you can't make a five-yard pass. So, yeah, of course momentum is a huge thing. Um, I'm, so, I'm so weak mentally that when I'm playing five-a-side, if I make one bad pass, that affects my whole game. That's genuinely. If I, make a, if, I make a, if I make a good pass in the first five minutes, I know I'm going to have a good game. Or if I score a goal or something, something good happens, I'm going to have a good game. I'm, I'm that weak-willed got no no drive about me at all buddy I'm, I'm guessing you're a fan of momentum yeah i'm i'm a huge fan of momentum plus it's not, man. not just for the proper football <laughs> man it's not just for the um players it's for the supporters yeah, as well totally. because if you you beat west ham you can almost kind of accept losing away at old trafford because it's one of those things and uh, you lose at old trafford tottenham lose at old trafford a lot of teams do 
Uh, but if you beat West Ham, you kind of like can take it a little bit better. Instead, now we've lost two games in a row, and now we've got Real Madrid, and then all it of a sudden you're yeah. looking at three, and then you got a game. Then it's the international break, and all of a sudden the mood, how it was, changes completely. Momentum is massive, yes. and there's a reason why someone like Mourinho will only use a certain number of players per season because it keeps keeps the momentum, keeps everybody flowing in the same way. And you could you could see it with some of our key players in, during the purple patch we've just had. I mean, Kane was basically unplayable at, mm. at points in that spell we've just had. Um, and hopefully he'll come back and be unplayable again. But that's clearly momentum. He's built up to that point. He hasn't just started being that good immediately at the start of the season. He's built slowly to that point. So that there has to be something to say about that. I think we're in kind of strange meta world now where... I, I did wonder in August, because obviously we, we pushed out the stat that Kane has never scored in August in the Premier League, um, which we did last year, which you know a few people took notes of, but it became a big thing this year, you know, it was on the back of papers and stuff. And you do wonder where, you know, there was a point when Kane was through on goal in one of your home games, and you do wonder whether it's playing on his mind. Suddenly he knows he's never scored in the Premier League in August, and it it's kind of a world where, you know, as you say, you know, a few bad results going to an international break, suddenly the whole atmosphere around the club is down and that, that will affect players and it is um, yeah it's kind of the, the two you know the supporters world and the and the players world are kind of merging a bit I think Is anyone else feeling an apology coming on here? I, I feel like Duncan should be writing an apology to Harry Kane well, for <laughs> August Well if he you know he did write in September Yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> But you feel like it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that you know he's had a one bad August so and he might then read about that and it it gets into his head somehow and it becomes a psychological barrier in a way. Yeah, I mean, players aren't immune. They're, you know, they'll read stuff and they'll um, they'll learn and you can see it with other things. Well, you know, like the Merseyside Derby has got a lot of red cards mm. and, and obviously it's a, it's a local derby and it will have some anyway, but you can kind of see players being like, well, this is a, you know, I'm going to fly into a tackle. Cause yeah. It's blah, blah, blah. And going back to momentum, I mean, the, the absolute perfect example of that was Vardy's run of 11. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, going back to XG, the XG for some of those goals he scored towards the end of that run were, was pretty low. You know, particularly the one to break the record, he basically just, you know, hit it against uh, United. You know, beat De Gea near post, I think. And um, you know, he wouldn't probably wouldn't have taken that shot if he wasn't in such an amazing mm-hmm. run. And it's that kind of hot hand theory as well, isn't it? So. Um, I don't believe that Wembley is cursed, but I do believe that it's played on the players' minds and that's why it's so good that we've now got a couple of results at Wembley to sort of wipe that sort of curse hanging over everyone's head. So that's that's an example of momentum in work. Football players are babies. They will use <laughs> any excuse to not perform. Um, the year Ferguson said he was going to retire at the end of the year, you saw what happened to that Man United team. Mm. They, they stopped playing. When there's a board takeover, when there's issues, the football player will use any excuse to just underperform. Red nap in England. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Chelsea the season, Mourinho after they won the title and mm-hmm. Mourinho got the sack. I mean, yeah, you know, players can affect stuff in such a massive way and just yeah, it's strange. So you got to stop. It's got momentum is really important. You can't let you can't don't let players think. Yeah. Do like in the in, Inter in the 60s They're not allowed to see their family They're not allowed to do anything <laughs> Lock them up Poch has got He's been pretty good in the past At turning things around quickly I think Where where we've had a, a mini blip He's good at kind of Getting the players back on side And, and making sure the results Then turn, turn themselves around naturally Yes But I don't think we've ever had A set of, set of games like this before True I We've got remember. a horrible run Yeah Normally, and the international break is is yeah. never a good thing when you're losing. You don't want to have lost two in a row then face Real Madrid. No, kind of absolutely. Thing. 
Um, sort of, we 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 spoke briefly about the Old Trafford um, performance, but Nath O Seven White on Twitter says, "Is our record away at the top six a sign of the times, or do we lack the bite or punch in the big away days to get a result on the road?" And he's he's sort of presented the image that Sky have shown numerous times of Pochettino's um, away record against the top six, and it's it's not it's not good reading. I mean, he had in 2015-16 we we managed six points in those games, but only one win. Um, 14, 15, 1 point, 16, 17, 2. And obviously this, this year we've only played the one match and have zero points so far. But what do you think? Um, away to the top six is sort of, by definition, the hardest games we play. Um, and I think that it's fine to set the expectation as, as an assumed loss. How many, is it six draws in that time? Each one of those draws is, is a worthy achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we, this is kind of a statistical thing, but if you look back at the correlation between the team who has the best record against the top six or the top four or whatever, and the team who wins the league, there's not a huge correlation there. There are 114 points available in the league, and there's 18 away to the top six. It, you know, it it doesn't matter. It's not. It, it matters for momentum, as we just touched on, but. In terms of, of winning the league, which I think is is what we're looking towards, it's it's just not that big a deal. Do you think it matters in terms of a statement, which is the word that Sky always use when they describe these matches? Yeah, I think that's fair enough. As again, momentum we looked at, and and you're also robbing your opposition of points. Um, but but outside of that, I just I just think it's fine. There's um one one chapter in Duncan's book. I can't remember what year it is, but Man United lost away to Chelsea, Arsenal, um, what the mm. other. Big six, and they still won the league at a canter. It's, it's, it, it kind of matters a little bit. It's making a statement, if you want to put it that way. But as Nathan said, those group of points are so small compared to the rest of the points on offer that doesn't really make a huge difference. I think it matters when it comes to kind of leaving a legacy. So if you think of, you know, like when United won 5 3 at White Hart Lane, you know, if you're just going for your first title in a long, long time, you don't care. Like you say, just get the points wherever you can win the league but then if you're trying to kind of build a legacy then you kind of probably do need to leave some sort of famous performances away at your rivals but mm. yeah as you say it's not that important we don't not have those we have the the 5-3 uh, against Chelsea we have the 2-0 against Chelsea we've we've had a good uh, bunch of results against Arsenal uh, recently so there's uh, and the 4-1 against Liverpool so there's not a complete absence of, of those big game results um, we just don't have uh, an amazingly shining record our final question in this episode is from Jack Kirby on Twitter. And we've got so much potential here to make us sound incredibly pretentious and smug. Um, Jack says, what tips would you give someone looking to increase their ability to read the game and develop tactical understanding rather than, ooh, he's run up and down a lot. Oh, now he's done a goal, which is sometimes a level I feel my understanding is at. I like the, I like the way Jack worded that question. Nathan, any thoughts? Sometimes I feel that my understanding is that level because you just get you get drawn into the excitement of the game and all you're doing is ooh and anaring. Um I don't really I haven't consciously thought about how I think about tactics. I I got into football a little late actually, uh, and I'm a bit of a nerd, so I was sort of naturally drawn to that side of things. I guess I would say um read up on a particular tactical concept and just um, bear that in mind with the next game. So, so Spurs like to force the opposition to play the ball long rather than let the opposition pass it about the back. So just with the next Spurs game, look at how they do that. 
um, which sort of sounds like homework. And if it feels like homework, don't do it because it's it's boring and and it's it's encroaching on your experience of the game. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. And and again, I really don't see myself as having a particularly high level tactical understanding, more just a tactical interest. Um, but I would say focus on a particular player you enjoy watching. That's that's how I kind of got into that side of it. So uh, one of the first players that um, that made me think this way was Michael Carrick. I loved watching Carrick play. Loads of fans didn't enjoy Carrick because they couldn't see what he was doing. So that made me want to prove even more what he was doing was having an impact. So I looked at Carrick's position in the in the grander scheme of the team and kind of worked out the good he was doing and ended up writing thousands of words on on forums that probably 15 people read um, about how amazing Carrick was for for Spurs and I was right obviously so um, there's that but that's yeah basically how I how I recommend starting Bardi Um, any tips? Well for me personally if you go to a stadium sit as high as you can Um, it's great to sit behind a goal or low down it's a bit more atmosphere but you can't really see the game if you go to watch a live football match there's nothing quite like having a high vantage point to be able to see how the team moves um, that's what I would recommend anyway to get your grips that way anything from you Duncan are you are you into tactics do you, do you find tactics interesting yeah I mean obviously I come from it uh, from a statistical point of view so, I mean I kind of I like looking at the data and then kind of retro applying that to players and so for instance Harry Kane consistently outperformed his XG for three years in a row probably isn't a one season wonder we can <laughs> confirm but if you actually look he he's not a player that scores stunning goals I mean he does a few but He's just very kind of consistent, and once you kind of know that he is outperforming the average, if you actually then watch his shots and his positioning in the penalty box, you can kind of see he's doing stuff that, to the naked eye, probably wouldn't you know it doesn't leap off the page. But he really is kind of impressive, and it's also something that's quite sustainable. I think you know it's not like it's not like he's a player that relies on raw pace that could just go overnight, like someone did, Michael Owen did, for instance. So um, yeah, it's like looking at little trends like that. I think is pretty good. Nice, yeah. I mean, Kane's just super efficient. I think that's what it comes down to. He he knows his strengths and he does his strengths so well. And, you know, obviously he's got many strengths, but that particular strength of just finding the bottom corner time and time and time again will stand him in good stead for many, many years to come, hopefully. Um, as ever, we, we kind of have a section called Further Reading where we all kind of recommend an article or a book or a podcast, something that we've read or listened to, um, recently should i start with nathan this week yeah if you uh have listened to this podcast and are intrigued about statistics then i recommend checking out chanceanalytics.com uh it's a sort of a statistical uh blog it was down for a little while but the site's back up now uh, and there's a a backlog of of good stuff to read there um i watched a really nice um documentary on youtube by 442 it's about goalkeepers position i've always felt um kind of I, i do like i played in goal for most of my life so I do feel um, a bit of um, bit of love towards them, and it was a really nice documentary. It had a um, bit Arsenal heavy, Graham Stack and Jens Lemon were on it, but there were other goalkeepers as well talking about um, how sh- the, how kind of rare it is in modern football and the kind of different different way they have to approach the game and look at the game. It's um, twenty minutes long, so it's a nice easy watch on YouTube. Nice. Duncan? Uh, reading a book called Beatable at the moment. It's about the Golden State Warriors uh, in basketball, obviously, um, and how they basically went from being absolutely terrible to, you know, world beaters. Um, and it's very good from a sort of data point of view in the sense that it it wasn't all down to data, but it, it shows how a kind of uh, unified philosophy at a club 
any sports club can kind of make a big difference and you see that now with certain clubs in the Premier League of which I'd include Spurs you know there's a very joined up kind of thinking across the whole organisation which you know is a kind of virtuous circle See, he's, he's saying nice things now to win favour among Spurs <laughs> fans, isn't he? And rightly so. Um, and I would like to recommend um, the Academy Productivity Rankings 2016-17, which is an incredibly snappy title, <laughs> written by um, a, a guy who was trying to decide which academy to put his son into and published by Training Ground Guru. So it's on the Training Ground Guru website, which is trainingground.guru. It's a fascinating ranking of the 86 Category 1-3 to three clubs. Wow. Um, this is peak win. No, 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 this is genuinely... <laughs> A what was that read. title again? Because I missed it. Academy Productivity Rankings 2016. Is it in PDF format? Yeah. <laughs> I, I imagine it is. No, there definitely is. It's basically written as a, a journal article in a in an academic. Um, <laughs> it's not going to bang with that title. He needs to. He needs to rework. You've that got to search for it in Google Scholar. <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating. And Spurs come out of this incredibly well. So um, it's interesting from that perspective. But I mean, just the fact that Crew Alexandra a ninth amongst Category 1 to 3 clubs in terms of their productivity above many of the Category 1 clubs, which I think is just an incredible achievement. You know, maybe they need to change their priorities a little bit and, and worry more about staying in the Football League, but still, I mean, who who can't admire, um, can't admire that? And Charlton, who were in the third tier but came seventh in the table, is another huge success story. They produce 44 professionals across the top five divisions, which I think is quite a staggering achievement. How long does this go back, though? Um, this is just for this year. Really? but okay. uh, So they're looking at players that are in the league mm-hmm. at the time of writing. Okay. But I, wow. I imagine that it's been such a success that I imagine he'll do it year on year and, mm. and keep the data going. But it's really interesting. And I just like the fact that he was trying to find the best place to send his son as well. Um, and it kind of, in many ways, ties into the kind of general narrative at the moment about youth football and, and England's success in the Under-17 World Cup and how the changes that have been made um, at grassroots level across the last 10-15 years and the impact, the, the fruit that is starting to bear, um, there's a lot to be hopeful about really. Right, I mean before we go I just want to say a massive thank you to Cave at SNK Studios who's who's housed us again, um, Cave's brilliant guy um i recommend following him on twitter he's got excellent opinions on spurs and the studio is phenomenal if ever you need any recording space then consider cave and, and get in touch with him um where can people find more of your content online duncan uh well there's mainly on twitter but uh be that up to joe or my own one uh, or so you, you run part of the up to joe you run the up to joe account with others do you yeah yeah i mean me and a me and a couple of colleagues started it in 2009 on a whim and it's done all right we passed a million followers last month so amazing such a success that's quite good but yeah i mean you know we obviously we're everywhere as well you know we're working with all the broadcasters all the all the newspapers so um yeah i mean people want to send in requests as well you know we're all if we're always open to good ideas so feel free nice well thank you so much for coming on it's been yeah, a real you. real pleasure to have you here and have your insight buddy good to see you back cheers windy <laughs> always nice to see your uh your smiling face um <laughs> and you are at bardy tfc on twitter yeah and nathan rebranded Nathan A. Clark. Nathan A. Clark. I have enjoyed um, Nathan's. Um, now he's got his face out there. He's getting <laughs> and because he's quite controversial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone referred I mean, to as Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I did get called Jesus the other day. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a Larry person, and that's coming through now. So yeah. <laughs> Stick at it. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. 
feel free to give us some feedback, good or bad, and ideas for talking points in the future. Obviously, this has been stats-heavy, so we've done tactics, we've done stats. Give us some ideas of what you'd like to hear next, and we'll be back in four to six weeks. Thank you very much for listening. It's the fighting. It's the fighting. Welcome to Bose Recommends. This is the place to discover your new favourite podcast. Every week we listen to hundreds of shows to bring you our favourites. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Rob Deering. This is Paul Tonkinson. Good morning. We are running commentary, or we create running commentary. It's it's our podcast. We are, and we're very excited to be part of Bose Recommends. We certainly are. Thank you, Bose. And uh, listen to running commentary. As you can hear, hopefully hear, we record it while we're running. That's it. We're talking about running whilst running. For runners, but people listen to it when they're not running. That's right, and we often talk about other things. I mean, it's not We talk just, about everything. It's life. It's life stuff. Yeah. Bit of running advice, bit of life stuff. A few laughs, bit of slapstick, bit of fun. Stop it, a bit of a story, why not? Yeah. So, so drinking. This is your running and drinking podcast. We've done 100 episodes and yeah. counting, haven't we? It comes out every week, every Thursday. So listen to running commentary on your favourite podcast app, Acast, iTunes. Go for it. That was this week's Bose Recommends, the place to discover your new favourite show. If you want to find out how you can enjoy podcasts and even better sound quality, visit bose.co.uk. Bose. Get closer.